Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. When I was a little boy, I'd be at my granny's house every Easter. Easter night, it would have been a Sunday night every single year without fail. The movie with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, would play. And it was a big deal. It was before the days of VHS and certainly DVDs. It was a really big deal. You know, you watch that and it's, it's almost magical. But there, there was one part in that movie that just absolutely terrified me as a child. And, of course, I think that it was meant to. And that's when the Israelites had to go out and paint their door with lamb's blood to prevent the angel of death from taking the firstborn child. And the angel of death was terrifying. It, it kind of swooped down over that collection of slaves. And you could hear the screaming off in the distance. The Murdoch case, I've come to think of them in that way. Almost like every place they go, everything they do, it seems as though that somebody passes away. What are the odds? What are the odds that you would have five, not just two, but five violent deaths that in some way have connectivity to that family? Today, we're going to have a discussion about those deaths and the upcoming trial of Alex Murdoch. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. My good friend Dave Mack is joining me today. Dave's with Crime Online. It's good to have you on the show with me today, Dave. How are you doing, my friend? Doing fantastic, and I just appreciate you letting me a part of this. I, ever since you started, I wanted to be on the show with you, ever since. I thought, well, I thought we were friends, man. What happened? Well, it's great to have you, Dave. Well, now, Joseph, you have you have followed this story. You've done a couple of deep dives on the show so far, and I've learned a lot from them. But when you actually take and separate them one at a time, they're not that remarkable in and of themselves. They're, I mean, granted, I mean, murder is a horrible thing, and we've got a number of dead bodies here. But it's when you put them all together. That's where it just... Holy moly. What you mentioned it. What are the odds? I can't name more than two in people I know who have ever had anything like that. But you're talking five. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a lot. I, I mean, it, it is. And if a statistician was out there and you were asking them to run the numbers, as it were, on this case, it's mind blowing when you consider the overall total populace of these areas talking about oh, the geography you got to throw that in yeah you, you have to because there's certainly isolation here these people live out in a rural area i mean the whole area is rural that's one of the things is so it's beautiful countryside when you go down there and you know it's the low country it's near the ocean and you've got the live oaks and low-hanging spanish moss and the air so thick you can cut it because of the humidity but there's a, a sweetness to it but there's real dark side to this because of all of these deaths. And you had mentioned that we had done a deep dive on body bags. I think early on, we had talked about the deaths of Paul and Maggie. Look, we, we've talked about this case for some time. We, we thought that we had all of the pieces in place. We thought that we knew some things, but 
amazingly, right before this trial, a document has actually come into our possession that reveals so much more about what may have happened that night, at least what was left behind. What evidence was found there at the scene adjacent to those dog kennels and within them? That evidence that could be observed on the bodies of Maggie and Paul. It's been said over the years, if you want to know how somebody's going to treat you, if you want an indication, an insight into who somebody is, get around them and their family. See how they Treat those that they should love more than anybody else in the world. Right now, Alex Murdoch, he sits in in a jail cell. And pretty soon, he's going to be going to trial. And the reason he's going to trial is that he has been accused and he has been indicted for a double homicide. And it's not strangers. It's his wife, Maggie. And his son, Paul, in arguably one of the most heinous crimes, I think, that certainly in this little slice of the world that they've ever experienced, ever borne witness to. And Dave, I got to tell you, you talk about an event that has rocked this area. This is something that will be spoken of for years and years and years Regardless of what the outcome of the trial will be, this is something that has left a deep, deep scar in this community. Joe, we've talked about the family, okay? We've got the death of Stephen Smith tied to Paul in 2015. We've got Gloria Satterfield, February 2018. We have Mallory Beach, February 2019. Those three deaths in and of themselves, one at a time, any one could maybe be explained to a degree, but when you tie them all together and you land on June 7th of 2021 and you have Maggie Murdaugh, the wife of Alex Murdaugh and her 22-year-old son, Paul. Paul's the one tied to Stephen Smith. Paul's the one tied to Mallory Beach. Maggie, not tied to Gloria Satterfield, but she was there. She was the first person to go to Gloria Satterfield the day Gloria fell. They're both at their own safe place. They called it the Lodge the place where Maggie and Paul were found by Alex Murdaugh. Yeah, a, a lot of these, and I'm not talking about the, the timeline, all right, with, with the event. That's something separate. I'm talking about the, the 9-11 call. Something that kind of cued me in on this to begin with was the fact that when the call is placed by this man out there, and, and again, right you were, you know, he's in the presence of, of these two people whom you would think that he would love more than anything in the world. There's a pause when 911 is called and you can hear the operator clearly. There's no talking over the operator. There's no screaming. There's no shouting. And many times what you will have, I've heard it for years now, listening to these tapes, you'll hear people that will be completely unintelligible because they're screaming and the operator saying, whoa, 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 catch your breath, catch your breath, calm down, calm, calm down. But when you listen to this recording of this man, it's very thin, the sound of his voice. And, and it sounds, it, there's not a lot of passion there, passion that would normally be associated with an individual that had just observed the bullet ridden bodies of a spouse that he has 
been married to for a protracted period of time, a spouse who he probably was at the hospital when she gave birth to his children. And his son is laying immediately adjacent out there to to his feed room for his dogs at this kennel that he has where he's, he keeps these hunting dogs out there. And just the fact that there's an absence of that there was very striking to me. Very, very striking. I just, I couldn't, there was just something that seemed off to it. I just couldn't, I couldn't factor it in like, like I thought that I could. Now that they've charged him, I'm thinking that the police probably know a bit more than certainly all of us know at this point. There's some stuff that has come out, but we, we don't know everything yet. But buddy, I got to tell you, that train's coming down the track. We're about to find out everything that happened that night and everything that they found out there at that scene. We know Maggie talked to a divorce lawyer. It is said that she was lured that she apparently expressed to more than one person that she did not want to meet with Alex at night. That's going to come up at trial. But the bottom line here is somehow Alex Murdoch claims that he was with his father at the hospital, then visited his mother about 20 minutes from the Moselle home where this took place, that he was 20 minutes away checking on his mother because she has dementia, and that he went to the home. And when he got there, he finds this carnage. Okay, now, Joe, you told me something about these murders that I I don't know how I missed it. You've got his wife. As strange or not, this is somebody you built your life with and have children with. They know everything about you. Laying there, shot. You're a 22-year-old son, also shot. But you told me they were shot with different weapons? Yeah, yeah, they were. And, and uh, listen, for those in the audience who have served in military or served in uh, uh, done time in law enforcement, you know that there's essentially two primary types of weapons. You've got long arms or shoulder-fired arms. You're talking about rifles and shotguns. And then you have sidearms, which are pistols. And that that's the most basic way I can kind of break it down. Yeah, there's a lot of exotic stuff out there. We could go down that road. But for our purposes today on body bags, we're talking about the two weapon platforms that were out there. You have a shotgun and you have what the police have identified as a rifle. Okay. Now, both of these weapons were utilized, and this is this is kind of an odd thing because they have charged Alex Murdaugh and Alex Murdaugh alone, alone in these homicides. There's nobody else associated with it, to the best of our knowledge. And the defense is going to say we're going to raise possibilities, but for the purposes of prosecution on the part of the state, this is the only person that's charged. So it, it begs this question: Who shows up with two weapons that are Equally capable of ending somebody's life, why would you need another weapon, another shoulder-fired arm? How clumsy is this? Well, it's it's very clumsy because dependent upon the type of shotgun that you're using, it's rather robust. The ammo that's required, your ability to load it, handle it, manage it. And, and yeah, they all come in different lengths. You can have kind of a, a weapon that has a pistol grip on it that's a, that's a shotgun that operates as a pump-action shotgun. It's a bit shorter than other types. You have, a, a, you have tactical shotguns uh, that have shorter barrels. Then you have shotguns that are commonly used for hunting, hunting bird. And you can, you can hunt deer with them. That's where the term buckshot comes from. But we do know this. A shotgun was used to kill ball. And one of the documents that we've come across describes just this ghastly injury, according to one of the individuals that works for the state. And the way he describes it is that Paul 
was struck in the chest. Now, th- this is kind of a nuanced thing, and I, I want to explain this. I love to throw in a little, a little bit of information many times about kind of the vernacular that's used. In medical legal death investigation, when you hear a forensic pathologist describe an injury to a chest, one of the questions that you should be asking next is, is it the anterior chest or the posterior chest? Because forensic pathologists don't say the word back. I don't know if people know that, but the area particularly that is between your shoulder blades, okay, they refer to that as the posterior chest, and then you have the anterior chest, the front, okay? Now, it would seem that in this case, at least, at least what I'm reading and hearing, and this is kind of secondhand, it would appear that Paul sustained an initial shotgun blast to the chest. And then it it turns, if that's not horrible enough, it turns to kind of a this ghastly event where there's an injury that he has described that involves the shoulder, the neck, and the skull. One of the descriptors that is used, and it's, this is coming from somebody that is a non-physician when they're saying this, the brain is no longer attached to the body. Now, I can tell you that that's not the way a forensic pathologist would say that. They would say that the brain was extruding from the cranial vault, or they would say the brain is absent from the cranial vault and lies in a particulate state adjacent to the body on the ground. They're not going to say the brain is detached from the body. So I, I kind of question the, the verbiage there, but suffice it to say that they're saying that there is two shotgun wounds, one to the chest, and they're calling this in this report that's out in the media right now that this was the initial blast. So we've got a sequencing that's going on. So, you know, what can we take away from that? If that is the gospel truth that was Paul initially blasted in the chest, he goes to the ground, and then the perpetrator stands over him kind of over to the side, if you would imagine a person lying face down, and fires again kind of obliquely, and the round enters through the shoulder, goes through the neck and then blows out the back of the skull because what they're saying is the head is completely blown apart, but you can, his face is still there and it's quite ghastly. And this thing's in the news media right now. I don't know how this was, this, it came out in discovery. I find that kind of fascinating because that goes to kind of the dynamics of what happened. You'd mentioned earlier was, was Maggie lured out there? Was Paul an intended target? Had something occurred to get them both out there in that same space because Maggie is not shot with a shotgun. She's found many feet away. Joe Scott, before you move into Maggie, let me ask you a question because Paul was hit with birdshot and buckshot. And there's a difference based on the injuries. What does that mean to you as, you know, as body bags? You've got to know that those are two different types of ammunition used on the shotgun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mentioned buckshot earlier. Well, buckshot is rather robust and dependent upon the type of buckshot it is. I'll just give you an idea. With a buckshot, think of, for folks at home that are not familiar with firearms and certainly shotguns, with buckshot, it can come in several sizes and it's measured in diameter. So double aught buckshot, aught is an old term for zero. You're thinking about something that would be the equivalent of a 32 caliber bullet. So that's 
0.32 inches in diameter. And you've got multiple of these in each one of these cartridges. Okay, so when that shotgun is blasted, you've got multiple projectiles that are just under the size of a standard marble that are going downrange at the target. And within a certain number of feet, this has a remarkable lethality to it because it's it's like being shot with a pistol multiple times only at the same time because all of these rounds are going down range. Now, you know, with a shotgun, the rounds themselves are not as energy efficient as a rifled round because a rifled round, single bullet in a rifled barrel spins. And so it maintains or holds on to the energy longer. So when it impacts an area, it delivers a lot of that inertial energy, that punch. With shotgun, that energy dissipates because that, that's coming out of what's referred to as a smooth bore weapon. There's no rifling in there. But then, this is odd. You mentioned in a fine point, it's loaded with buckshot, and then you have birdshot. And again, you're not familiar with that. That's okay. Birdshot is just the same, cut open one of the rounds, empty it out. It looks like BBs. It looks just like a BB that you would put in when you were a kid, if you had a daisy BB gun, those tiny little BBs. And those are literally used to hunt small animals, like you can hunt squirrels and rabbits, but primarily you use them to go bird hunting with. You're taking quail or dove or pheasant, that's what you're going to use. It doesn't require buckshot. Buckshot is used by the police. It's used by hunters that want to use a shotgun to deer hunt with. Buckshot, that's the reason, like a buck deer. So why would you have two separate types of ammo? Well, for me, I'm thinking, well, did you run out of ammo and you just grabbed, happened to grab a around a buck shot and then around a bird shot or 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 are you trying to make it look like there were not just one shotgun but two shotguns involved in this because now you've got Maggie she's in a different position over here some distance away from her son and she's been shot with a rifle round multiple times almost as if she was moving away from where Paul was she's hit multiple times and then the final two shots are closer. Like she's knocked down by multiple shots as she is moving away from the shooter. Then the individual approaches her and holds the weapon over her body. And then she's executed, essentially. Maybe she was still moving. And the individual approached her from the rear while she was down and then essentially ended her life by executing her, shooting her in the back of her head. One case in particular that kind of stood out to me was the death of Gloria Satterfield. And, and I, I think a lot of it goes to my rural upbringing, Gloria's family. They're, they're salt of the earth kind of folks. And she had been attached to, to this family for years and years, 20 plus years. She was like a domestic worker, right? I mean, she was that close. Somebody who was with the family every day, tending to very personal needs inside the home. Yeah, and multiple locations, you know, where she would go and she was very familiar with the family and she was certainly long enough there with that family to probably 
tended to these boys when they were young. So she she had been a part and parcel of that family all of these years. And I'm sure that on one level, they treated her maybe like family. Of course, you know, you're, you're never truly in the family when you're around a group like this. They are certainly, I guess, elite in this tiny little little piece of the world down there. These are the people that don't rent a tuxedo to go to a fancy dinner. They've got a couple different styles. And she's like Ann B. Davis. She's Alice on the Brady Bunch. Yeah, she is. And she tended to them. She was there to take care of, you know, cooking and cleaning and probably washing dirty clothes and running around doing chores, going to go buy groceries for the family. There to meet all of their domestic needs, if you will. She knew a lot about this family. And of course, Dave, there was quite a bit to know about them. Well, let me ask you this, Joe, because I was looking into this uh, with her in particular, with her passing, because as you and I have talked about this before doing this today, there is so much involved when you just look at Alex Murdaugh and all of the things that file down that pyramid of things, you know, starting with Gloria Satterfield at the top and going down. Every person that died has the same thing. The bottom of the story, as you peel off these different layers, gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And I'm looking at this with just Gloria Satterfield. We're talking about February of 2018, right? Yes. Just yep. a couple of years ago. Yep. And was she at work that day? Was she there to pick up a paycheck? What was she actually doing that day? She was there at the home. I don't know specifically what her duties were on that particular day, but I do know that she was at the home. It had come out initially, there's this phone call, this 911 call that comes in. And of course, it's Paul and Maggie. Paul's there, Maggie's there, and old Gloria's at essentially the base of an external staircase there on the property. And she's fallen, and she's apparently struck her head. You can hear Maggie and Paul going back and forth over this. And it, it turns out there is an injury to her head. You know, and it, it came out initially that she had fallen down the staircase and what kind of really caught my ear with this event in particular was the fact that they said later that she had tripped over a dog it's interesting isn't it you know dogs seem to play play a role in this family's life all the way through in this case particular again there's a dog involved and she was alleged to have fallen over a dog. It wasn't just simply her tripping down a staircase and cracking her head. A dog was involved. You know, now, unfortunately, the eyewitnesses are the finders, if you will. They're gone. They're, you, you can't go back and question Paul and Maggie, you know, about what had actually happened. And that, that's one of the important things about when you conduct an investigation and you're looking into things, you never know about what the dynamics are going to be of that group of people that you're interacting with when the case goes down to begin with. Because, you know, it's very possible that the police, when they initially looked at this case, and I kind of get this feeling with this, that they view this case as literally a domestic accident that she did, in fact, trip and fall. And if they handled it that way then maybe they were not initially as thorough because we have to remember that in death investigation, I talk about this on body bags, I've talked about it several times, that our working premise every time, and I don't care how old the person is or how infirm they are, our working premise is that every death, not some, but every death, is in fact homicide until we can prove otherwise. Because if you do that, if that's 
if, if that's the direction you take with a case, homicides tend to be the most complicated. So if you start out as that, that is the gold standard, you're going to collect every bit of information, whether it's physical Physical information is you're recovering with physical evidence at the scene, or if it's circumstantial evidence, you're going around, you're, you're interviewing people. Maybe I heard a sound, or maybe she said something, or, you know, I'm dizzy, or maybe I've got chest pains, or if, if she's asymptomatic prior to this, what would seem to be a spontaneous fall, was she exhibiting any signs that she was in cardiac or neurological distress prior to that, indicating that she's got some kind of underlying disease that might have brought this about as, instead of something that might be much, much darker. So when you get there to investigate, you're relying on the person who made the 911 call, the person who is on site, to tell you what transpired before you got there. And you take that at face value, I'm assuming, until you can either corroborate what they're saying, backed up with the facts, or go, hey, somebody's lying here. Because in this case, Maggie Murdaugh and Paul were both asleep. Maggie woke up at the fall. Paul was woken up later on. I mean, that's one of the stories that came out. And I'm wondering how these things play into your investigation. Yeah, and, and much of that comes along with experience. And you're interacting and you're looking for tells, essentially. Now, we're not talking about physical evidence. We're talking about when you're speaking with somebody and you're trying to extract information from them in the interview process. Is there anything that kind of sets your senses off with them to give you an indication that they are deliberately trying to deceive you in some way or they're being untruthful. This goes to looking for cues in language and cues and movement and all these sorts of things that people that are very highly skilled in the interview process look for. And understand when you're in the field as an investigator, a crime scene investigator, you don't necessarily possess that skill set. But you should have at least a baseline understanding of it if someone is not being completely truthful. Because let me tell you what can happen at that point. Once you've kind of identified it and you've identified these things that are kind of making you uneasy about what you're hearing, you say, you know what, I think this would be a really good opportunity to call our detective in that specializes in this. And he will meet them back at headquarters and he'll get the main interview with them. It'll be recorded. It'll be on tape. He'll take notes and he, he knows where to kind of push the buttons and that sort of thing. But, but everything begins with that initial contact that you make with them. And then along with that, you try to couple it with physical evidence you know, one of the big things that you look for, for instance, if you have an idea that there's a head strike, you know, where someone falls over and they impact their head. And you, is there is there any indication? Here's a big one. Is there any indication that after the fall that this person moved around at all? Because if the skin is broken or if there's internal injury inside of the skull and you've got blood coming out of the ear, there's a big opportunity there for blood to literally drip away from the head. And as it's dripping away, if you're standing, if you're fully erect and you're moving away, just kind of wandering around people with head injuries, sometimes will just kind of circle about confused and disoriented. You'll see little trails of blood. Well, that's something that you would cue in on from a physical standpoint to try to get an idea as to what was going on after the initial injury, and then you couple this with what witnesses or the finder is saying, and does it mesh? Does it marry up? And unfortunately, I think that there were probably a lot of things that were missed in this initial contact with these people 
after 911 had been called and the PD rolls out there and you've got an ambulance that rolls out there. Because I got to tell you, once Gloria got in the back of that ambulance and made it to the hospital, she never walked back outside of that hospital. Matter of fact, the next time she left that hospital, she was deceased. For all of y'all out there that listen to body bags on a regular basis, you know that death comes to us in all forms. And I tell you, with this family, it seems that these individuals that are interconnected with them, death has met these subjects in a variety of different ways. And when we talk about Gloria Satterfield and this kind of strange circumstance that she passed away under where she struck her head and there was never an autopsy performed. She was in the hospital for three weeks and... They signed her death out as a natural death. But thinking about her death, there there were two others that are connected, seemingly, with this family. And they both involved motor vehicles or motorized vehicles. We have a we have a boat accident, and we have an an event that occurred seemingly in the middle of the road, in the middle of the night, and a young man that happened several years beforehand, all the way back in 2015. His name was Stephen Smith, and he was found dead lying in the road with some pretty nasty injuries. You know, Joe, when you're looking at these murders associated with Alex Murdoch, in particular the Murdoch family in general, you mentioned, you know, Gloria Satterfield. We've got a lot of weird nuance there, okay? Something didn't happen the way they said it did. Now, Stephen Smith was a couple of years before Gloria Satterfield. It was actually July 8th of 2015. Stephen Smith is 19 years old. He was found dead along a rural road. His death was initially classified as a hit and run. And it doesn't seem to have any kind of connection to the Murdaws, okay? But six years later, after everything else that has gone on in the Murdaugh family with Alex Murdaugh and all the accusations, SLED, they decided we're looking into this. And out of this, we find out when the case is reopened that Stephen Smith was found dead. He was found dead in the middle of the night in the dark in Hampton County. His mother believes he was murdered. And I I think you got to take that into consideration because she knows her son. She knows what he would and wouldn't do in the middle of the night. His car was found not right near his house. It was discovered three miles away from where his body was. So three miles away is his car parked on the side of the road with the gas cap off, ostensibly to show that he was maybe walking for gas in the middle of the night, which none of his family believes because he had two working cell phones and he was close to home. He was within six miles of his house. So you're in the middle of the night. You got a cell phone that's working. You run out of gas. You don't start walking down the road. You pick up the phone and call, say, hey, I hate to bog you, mom, but, you know, I'm, I'm a couple miles away. Can you come and get me? And we'll get my car tomorrow. I mean, that's what we're dealing with, but that didn't happen. His body was found, and you mentioned gruesome injuries, Joe. You've seen plenty of gruesome injuries in your life. I read the description of this, and I'm thinking, if it was a hit and run, I don't know how they could do this. Yeah, it'd be very difficult. This poor man, he's a very young man. He was literally laying in the middle of the road. And it would appear that he was what we refer to as a pedestrian struck by a motor vehicle. And one of the 
interesting little things that we look for with people that are walking either in the middle of the road or just on the shoulder of the road. You have to think about when you're standing up fully straight and you're kind of striding along. And one of the things you look for are specific areas of impact. And we call these bumper marks. And many people might not be aware of this. It's kind of a a thing that that I learned as a death investigator. I worked a lot of what we call MVAs, motor vehicle accidents. And with pedestrian, we call it pedestrian versus motor vehicle. When an individual is walking along and they are struck, you have to think about what's probably the leading edge of that motor vehicle as it is moving down the road. It's going to be the bumper. And, of course, a lot of this is height-dependent, you know, what the suspension looks like on a car, the height of the person, for instance. But if you just imagine, everybody in the sound of my voice right now, just imagine anywhere from the area from just below where your hip articulates with your pelvis, so your the upper portion of your of your femur, all the way down to just superior to your ankles. You look for these kind of linear or bilinear markings, and they can approximate the width of a bumper. If you have clothing that is overlying the legs, for instance, and let's say they're wearing a pair of jeans, you'll also get kind of an abrasion many times that comes about as a result of the contact, that that very vigorous contact that occurs when the clothing is rubbing up against the surface of the skin. And so this translates into kind of braided area. Sometimes you can have an underlying contusion, bruise. It'll be very, very deep because you're talking about the impact of a moving motor vehicle. And you have to think out in this area, this is not adjacent to a stop sign or a stop light. So the car would have been traveling at full speed. Well, guess what? This kid didn't have those marks on him. But what he did have were some pretty gruesome injuries to his head and his shoulders and maybe his hands as well. But yet there was no evidence that he had been struck as he was standing at full height. So when you look at a case like this, you begin to think, well, Lord have mercy. Was he laying on the ground and run over? How did he get into this position lying on the ground which would have facilitated, that position would have facilitated these insults to the body. Because it's just basic common sense. We're not going to the moon here. It's just basic common sense. Where did the car initially make contact? Well, these points of contact, according to what we have heard so far, have been in in the extremis, in the upper body. And so that, that as an investigator, that makes you pause and you think. And a, a, a real fascinating aside to this is that when the accident investigator was out there, he made note of something that was absent. There was no evidence of any kind of debris. Like many times when you have these impact events with a car, bits of the car will break off and you'll see them. They'll be lying about. You'll have fiberglass, you'll have plastic, all that sort of stuff. And every now and then metal. It just appears, though, that a vehicle just ran right through him, if you will, and left him in this condition. Even if you were going to do a hit and run, Joe, even if you're doing a hit and run, you're going to hit the brakes after the fact. You know, if you're just driving along the roads, middle of the night and out of nowhere, you see a, bo- you know, a person and you accidentally hit them, you're to crush a guy's head, leave a gaping wound and dislocate his shoulder. There's going to be enough noise made that you're going to stop. That is assuming one thing that you were not purposed in doing it. If you were purposed, 
if you had essentially, and just folks just kind of get hold of this just for a second, a car, a motor vehicle can be weaponized. A motor vehicle is essentially can be used just like a knife. It can be used like a baseball bat or it can be used like a firearm. If you purpose to use that vehicle as a means to bring about somebody's death, okay, I would argue if we were just going to have a cup of coffee and sit down about it, uh, sit down and have a chat about it, I'd say, well, you could use a motor vehicle to that end. What if you don't have access to a gun? What if you're just somebody that has something against this young man and the vehicle all of a sudden becomes what we refer to as a weapon of convenience. It's almost like a rage-filled event in a domestic squabble where a weapon of convenience would be, say, somebody's got a lamp laying around or they've got an iron skillet or they've got a butcher knife. And because they want to inflict harm, lethal harm on this individual, they pick it up and they utilize it. Well, the car, same way. I think you can kind of maybe extrapolate from that, perhaps. And I hope that the investigators are doing that and have done that in this particular case. According to Highway Patrolman, a South Carolina Highway Patrolman, as they've done follow-up on this case, you go, well, where is this tied to Alec Murdoch? How does this tie into the Murdoch family at all? Well, the rumor mill. You're in a small area. You mentioned this at the very beginning of Body Bags today. It's a small geographical area. These are the elite people, you know, rich, wealthy, all that. Well, there are always rumors that there was a Murdoch boy tied to this, okay? And I say always rumors. They had calls. The South Carolina State Trooper actually said, you know, to an unidentified tipster, they'd had nine phone calls about a connection to a Murdoch boy. And you're thinking, well, in reality, it's probably Paul because of the age. But look at this. The next day, after this death, okay, of Stephen Smith, who calls the Smith family offering all their help? Randy Murdaugh. He's the older brother of Alec Murdaugh. And Randy calls, offers to take on the case free of charge. I'll help you with everything. But Stephen's dad was like a little iffy on accepting the offer because it's just there's something icky, something not right here. Why are you offering to help? Well, now you're thinking if a Murdaugh is involved and a Murdaugh is volunteering to be involved. It's a simple hit and run. If that's the case, why would they bother? He did it because he knew the family. Otherwise he says, no, I just heard about the case. Thought I'd help. That's your connection to Murdaugh, but that's not the only motorized contraption causing a death here and an association with the Murdaugh's. Cause you've got another one, Joe, we've got the death of Mallory beach. Young Miss Beach, her death was kind of that moment in time. It was probably an initial moment of clarity. If if no one in the community had insight into kind of the family dynamic with the Murdoch's, you suddenly got it here with Mallory Beach. I want to interrupt you, Joe, because you get something about this that everybody has to know is I covered that from the beginning and we have video of Paul, Mallory, all of them, the night they get on the boat, Joe, and they're all drinking. They're all inebriated. We have video with audio. We have seen them, and I'm not knocking kids being kids. That's what they are. But to set this up properly, they were partying, and Paul was leading the charge, Paul Murdaugh. Yeah, he was, and, and he was using illegally using an ID to purchase alcohol with. There's CCTV footage of him doing this, of purchasing the alcohol. And uh, this is the thing that really strikes me. This family's been around for a century in this area in a position of power. You're going to tell me 
that you're the proprietor at this location and you don't know who this kid is. You don't know that he's not who was on that ID, but yet they sold him booze anyway. And he got hammered. I mean, he absolutely positively got hammered. He's in this boat, piloting this boat. He's the master and commander of this boat in, in a very difficult area to navigate, even during the day. And for folks that haven't been to the low country and you kind of go over these kind of marshy, swampy areas that lead out into the intercoastal and the intercoastal eventually gets out into the ocean, it's treacherous if you don't know where you're going. And the bridges in and of themselves are kind of low. The visibility of the pilings is dependent upon tides, okay? Because even in inland like this, these are tidal marshes, you know, that everybody goes out and you can go fishing, you know, and go catching redfish and, and sea trout and all those sorts of things that get up in these areas. But dependent upon the height of the tide or the height of the water depending upon the tide, if you're not aware of where certain structures are, it's difficult. So then you couple this, you couple alcohol, copious amounts of alcohol. You have drunk kids. It's in the middle of the night. And buddy, let me tell you something. There's dark and then there's being out on the water. It's just very, it's pitch out there. And maybe inexperienced boater in the first place. And you've got a very powerful vehicle here that you're traveling along. And so it is an absolute, I don't think it's an, an understatement to say that this is a recipe for disaster. He's out there in this kind of marshy area and he's doing donuts in the boat at a high rate of speed with these, all of these kids in it. And you can imagine they're horrified. It's dark outside. They're all, they've all been drinking. And suddenly he just kind of slingshots out of this thing and takes off down the waterway. And eventually he ran that boat into a piling that was supporting a, a bridge, a concrete piling. And tried to get other people to say they were driving the boat. Oh, yeah. To add to all this, you have to remember, after the accident, okay, wrecking at the pilot, but Mallory Beach was thrown from the boat. Mallory Beach was not on the boat when they called for help. They could not find her. And you mentioned it. You called it pitch. Pitch black. It was so dark. You're on the water. You're in the marsh. You don't know how high the water table is at that moment just because, you know, it is middle of the night and we're all drunk. They couldn't find her. They didn't find her at daylight. Matter of fact, they didn't find Mallory Beach for a week. She was missing. They were too busy trying to cover up and create a story that would mitigate Paul's responsibility in all of this. But when they did find Mallory Beach's body, there was a very, very mad family because by then the kids had sobered up. By then the kids were talking. By then the stories were out about Paul calling himself Timmy and doing donuts on the water where they couldn't even see where they were. They find their beloved 19-year-old daughter who put her trust in Paul and she's gone. She ain't coming back. And the family decides to sue. Yeah. And I think that it's hard to say that anything good could come out of this, but I, I got to tell you, I think that her death may have opened the door to what we eventually see with this family. Eyes were suddenly opened, I think, because, you know, a lot of these kids were recounting people coming into the room to attempt to influence them regarding their statements. One young man was, I think, even it was even hinted that he should take responsibility for the one piloting the boat as opposed to Paul. 
Once that gets out into a small community, and trust me, in a, in a town like this, in a county like this, everybody talks. Everybody goes to church together. Everybody drinks drinks together. People drink coffee together down at the local cafe. They go fishing together. They go hunting together. They do business with one another. People talk. The story gets out. And, you know, all the things that have been whispers about this family for years and years, the fear that people had of them because they were so very powerful. Suddenly, you know, here's this kind of lucid moment with this beautiful young lady and she's gone. She's gone and not just gone in like a car crash where she's there and her remains are pinned in the vehicle. She dies literally in the presence of her friends. She's not found for a week. You know, you had mentioned, Dave, how they were so focused on protecting themselves. Her value is suddenly lost, lost beneath the water out there in all of this horror and chaos. And I think that that was a real eye-opener. And it certainly, I think that it cued the police as they moved along with this investigation. And, of course, what wound up being a double, a sure enough double murder that occurred in the same county. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Body Bags.